Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for tuning back in to Think Big. Today on Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson, we are going to dig into the science of bodybuilding, as we always do. Well, pretty much Scott is, and I'm just gonna tag along and ask some questions along the way. Today, we're gonna start out talking about understanding estrogen and AIs. After that, we have a listener from Patreon that wants to discuss building denser muscle without creating more muscle volume, then lipotropic compounds and injectable vitamins. Another Patreon guy asked, should we limit carbs post intense cardio to improve mitochondrial biogenesis? Then we talk about good old fashioned high DECA with flow test. Guys, all this and a bunch more. Listen, if you enjoy our content, then do me a favor, hit the like button, leave us a comment. And if you haven't subscribed, we've got a bunch of different bodybuilding podcasts, all entertainment, education, everything in between coming out each week. So hit the subscribe button, hit the bell. There's a lot more coming from us. Let's get to the show. guys, welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. You can use our code THINK for some additional savings. If you're from Canada, you can also shop with supplementsource.ca. And regardless of where you're at, you can go to byobbcoach.com to get the best book in the world, the be-all, end-all, one-stop shop to take care of your off-season, your contest prep, and more. Get it signed by Scott himself. Oh. <laughs> Don't get me in trouble, dude. I'm not offering that service. But this is a one-way ticket to the Mr. Olympia stage, literally. Yeah, yeah. Buy this, and um, you'll be on the Olympia stage. Brandon Curry said so himself. <laughs> he did. Yeah. Yeah. He did say that it's that, that that it was one of his top books or maybe his foremost recommendation. Yeah, he didn't technically very, very cool. say it was he didn't actually say it's a one way ticket to the Olympia stage, but <laughs> that's pretty much what he meant. That's pretty think, much what I he meant. He, I think he said he would still be like wallowing in the lower ranks of the local show shows were it not for my book and look at him now, you know. <laughs> so uh, it made that much of a difference. As I had said to Scott on text yesterday, Scott, you have been summoned by the people oh. of Patreon. You've, we've summoned the power of Scott Stevenson. We had a couple of questions, but before we hit the button, I was uh, talking to you. You were explaining some cool stuff about estrogen. And I was like, oh, man, I want to just like bottle that up and bring mm. it to the podcast because I felt like, man, this is stuff that people would really enjoy hearing. And it, it, some of it kind of stemmed from just co random conversation relating to, you know, I've heard other people say that there's kind of been this renaissance use of letrozole. And then it got us talking about, like, how fast does estrogen clear? Because we all know, you know, if you were to have an estrogen problem, you can start popping your ADEX, popping your letros, popping your arimidexes. Uh, your romasins, uh, and that doesn't mean that the estrogen that's in your body is going to be touched. Basically, the, the, the I can't remember who said it, but I love this analogy. Uh, an AI is like closing the gate to the parking structure. So you can't let more cars in. If there's already cars in the parking structure, then Nolvidex would be the equivalent of like putting a cone in front of each space so that the, the cars can't park. Uh, there you and, go. And eventually, you know, those cars filter out and leave. 
But I wanted to ask you, how long does it take that estrogen that's in your body? If your estrogen was high, you try to get under control using an AI, that estrogen that's floating around, how, how long is that left? So, yeah, that's, I mean, we were, cause I was just sort of given my best guess based on the most sort of well, well understood and, uh, function of estrogen is that's, you know, in being one of the two hormones that's involved with the menstrual cycle that varies on a monthly basis with women. So, yeah, I, I love that analogy. Before I go on to the, answering the direct question, I like that analogy because it's important to know, um, aroma, aromatase is actually sort of a, a complex, there's like several steps in the aromatization process. Um, and uh, there are numerous ways you can inhibit that with an aromatase inhibitor, um, competitive, non-competitive binding and suicide inhibition, all those sorts of things. You can go into the, how the different AIs work and those AIs have different half-lives. Like a suicide inhibitor would bind to the, uh, the enzyme and stays there. It's just there. And, it, and that enzyme is then inactivated. So literally, it's kind of like um, if, you, if the enzyme is blocking the pathway into the parking garage, right? And, and the, you know, the, the, um, the parking spots where the estrogen would go, you've got some aromatase inhibitors that are just going to stay there. And you're going to have to keep on replenishing that by continuing to take the aromatase inhibitor. But others, depending on their half-life, so how fast they're cleared from the system, um, are going to be around for longer or shorter period of time, but also how they act on the enzyme. It may be that some of those, once once you've got, um, uh, they're gone from the system, there's no more inhibition. But others, if it's a suicide inhibitor, it binds and stays there. And then that enzyme's gone. It's knocked out. That's literally just, you just completely destroyed that entryway to the parking garage, pretty much. So that, the actions of the aromatase inhibitors in terms of how long they act are be a function of, blood levels, as well as the mechanism of inhibition. Um, and then the parking garages, or sort of the, the cones in the way of the parking, there's two different parking spots. You kind of got the VIP, and then you've got the regular, you know, or um, valet, maybe, or the regular. Hmm. There's two different estrogen receptors. At least, at least there's two classical genomic estrogen receptors. Okay. So we talked a little bit about this in terms of the antigen receptor. I kind of chimed in on one of Dave's um, podcasts with you on a Monday or, or an early morning and talking about the antigen receptor, there's actually antigen receptors that, are the, the, there's only, only one that I know of that has various forms. That's the classical one that binds as a dimer. Then that combination with the antigen goes into the nucleus and then activates all the antigen receptor um, sensitive elements. And you have all sorts of things happen in terms of genetic expression protein synthesis and all that good stuff, but we want all the androgenic responses. Well, you've got actually two estrogen receptors, an alpha and a beta, that act in that way, plus estrogen receptors that are on the membrane. And there's, there may be several of those from what I've seen because they can look at di different ways that you can um, inhibit the second messenger systems. Um, and there's different second messenger systems that are involved with estrogen signaling. So that tells you there's different membrane, so on the surface of the cell, and then there's those estrogen receptors, the classic ones that are the long acting, that are inside, inside the cell. There's an alpha and there's a beta. And the alpha tends to have um, a lot of the positive benefits of being anti-inflammatory, 
Um, it has a, a free radical quenching activity that's associated with it when you bind to that alpha receptor, the, the alpha estrogen receptor, not the alpha receptor, not the, I'm talking about beta receptors here or um, adrenal receptors here. So the estrogen receptor alpha subtype is kind of the, the good of benefits of estrogen and the, and the, for just health wise, but the beta form um, is the one that's actually been associated with anti-catabolic effects and anabolic effects. So in the distribution, um, like muscle has both, kind of the most important thing. Muscle has both alpha and beta. So when you look at serums like um, Clomid or um, Novodex or Teremaphine or Raloxifene, those have differential binding effects on the different alpha, different um, estrogen receptors. Okay. And you can look all those up. You know, there's a table, I think, in Wikipedia that's nice. I think I saw once. Huh. Um, yeah. So you can have some like raloxifene is a, like an alpha, it's a partial uh, alpha receptor agonist, and but it's an antagonist to the estrogen receptor beta isoform. So that's an example where if someone, for instance, and this is where like, this is a whole other little avenue of, of, of variability in, in um, bodybuilders is estrogen is, is uh, anabolic. You see this, like the thing that people point to the most is when you look at like cattle implants and the agricultural science world, they'll put like the, the standard cattle pellet would be like a trend balone, mm-hmm. good old trend with estradiol. Mm. with one of the three estrogens and that creates a better anabolic effect it's anabolic in terms of fat to some degree but you get greater better uh, yield in terms of how much you feed the animals and how much muscle you get out of them they look at marbling and all that kind of stuff and there's probably some nuance there that i'm aware i'm not aware of but so you've got that estrogen receptor beta and to what extent that estrogen is going to be anabolic is as far as i can tell from the limited data I've seen a lot of this is in rats and I haven't looked at this directly and you know I didn't didn't come today prepared to talk about this yeah yeah just, out of my head um I like it I can but, just like throw a random sciencey question yeah. at you and you can just <laughs> like, go that's what this is, this is great about this just look what the fuck's you got in there See what it, it's kind of like you might get a tin can you, know, you, you might might get just like some, you know some barbed wire you pulled out of the bottom of the pond or yeah it could be a fish not a what's fish you'd want to eat necessarily, but what's that fishing you know. called with the with the uh, magnet magnet fishing? Is that it? I don't know. Yeah, oh, magnet well, yeah, fishing. We, just so we should pull out of the bottom of the lake. Welcome back to yeah. magnet fishing with Scott Stevenson. <laughs> there you go. Magnet information fishing. So, but that's a possible very a variability a very a, a source of variation. For instance, is if someone uses a serum to block estrogen effects. The yeah. extent to which that serum blocks the alpha versus the beta receptor, and the extent to which they're sensitive to the, the sense to which it binds in them or the, the, the post receptor mechanisms are going to vary. Not to mention the estrogen receptor that's on the surface of the cell, which is kind of a completely unknown territory. Like that's that's for a whole nother season of Star Trek right there because there's unexplored <laughs> territory there. You know, okay, I don't know what's going on with that. So. At least that I, I haven't found that like it's really been ironed out. So um, anyway, that's kind of like what's going on with aromatase inhibitors um, in terms of how fast, the extent to which they inhibit aromatase. About most of the estrogen in men 
comes from aromatization. So it's from testosterone that's been converted or most of the estrogenic actions. If someone's on gear, let's say is going to be come from aromatase. Um, if you're just talking about um, no gear involved, about 25% of the estrogen that is, um, is in the bloodstream is, is produced directly by the testes. Okay. So, and there's also, there's also, um, estriol and estrone. Um, I believe if I'm recalling correctly, like, like on a concentration basis, estriol is, is it estrone or estriol? One of the two is I think estriol is higher in amount and concentration than the other two estrogens. It just doesn't have such as high, as high of an activity. Okay. But that's, but that's another thing. So there's a complex, um, metabolism there of where, like, I think DHEA and estradiol can both go to estrone. Huh. I recall, like you can, someone could find the metalog pathways. That's one of those things. I'll just look that up if I need it, but it's a very complex scenario. So someone could take like DHEA, um, as part of an HRT, um, uh, protocol, which sometimes folks will. And, um, just for health and it's, it has an antioxidant effect in of itself. Yeah. And some of that might be mediated through estrogen production. Hmm. So you can end up with an estrogen spike from taking DHEA. I've heard of that so, before. I haven't seen it, yeah. but I've heard of it. Yeah. So it's a really complicated scenario, but the thing to get at the, the question was that if you look at what happens during the menstrual cycle. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we got the background of all these different receptors, receptor subtypes, surface receptors, intracellular genomic receptors. Um, in the menstrual cycle, you've got about a week when you're getting um, a spike in estrogen. Progesterone's involved there too. Ovulation, we're talking about a normal menstruating woman. And then if there's no implantation, there's no pregnancy, then, the then those, those two um, the progesterone and estrogen levels will fall back down in about a week. Okay. And so that gives you kind of like the time scale through which estrogen is controlling things on a, on a very basic physiological level. Um, the menstruation process, what happens, and this is what we we're talking about before afterwards, if someone, if a woman has gotten pregnant, there's been ovulation, there's been successful fertilization and you get implantation. So the, the, um, the fertilized egg or the egg gets to the, the endometrium and implants there and starts to um, undergo meiosis and, or mitosis in this case, then you get a growing fetus and that's where HCG comes from. It's an embryo before it's called a fetus. So that's where HCG comes from. So that takes over HCG basically is the same thing as luteinizing hormone. And that stimulates ovarian estrogen production. And keeps that high, which helps maintain the uterine lining so you don't have a menses. There's no sloughing of that endometrium because there's a growing baby there. Or mm. we use the wrong terminology, but it's a growing embryo and then becomes a fetus at eight weeks, I believe. Yeah. So, uh, so like that's like if that doesn't happen, like within a couple of days after ovulation, it's like a kind of that window, just on average, um, and you don't get a, a elevation in estrogen, then then you're going to have a menses that's going to happen. Estrogen levels drop back down, and then, you know, uh, 10 days later or what have you, in the second half, um, you've got what would be the with the follicular stage, or sorry, the luteal stage, um, 
you're going to have a menses. So everything's happening with estrogen in terms of the spike coming up and down and a whole lot of events during that period of ovulation and potential pregnancy in a matter of a week. So you look, take the, that, that idea, that's my kind of like my, my framework of the timeline through which estrogen exerts its actions. Hmm. And if we apply that then to men and they've got all the same pieces involved in terms of enzymes of conversion and receptors and what have you, if you drop estrogen levels down, let's say you just decide to, to take, um, uh, start eat, taking letrozole like the Tic Tacs yeah. and you drop your estrogen levels down in the bucket, um, the estrogen actions that, that are going are, are gonna to drop very, very rapidly thereafter, probably in a matter of days. Okay. Some of it's a long acting hormone and that it's a steroid hormone. It acts in those genomic ways, but you're going to feel the effects of that lickety split. Okay. And this happens like a common complaint. Um, people, a lot of people probably heard, uh, Fuad talking about this when he was kind of prepping this last time. I think he, when he didn't actually compete, but, and he dropped his, his estrogen low. I think it was taking aromatase inhibitors and like he immediately felt like shit. He like, he literally could tell the effects some of that cognitively could have been through those those cellular hmm. plasma membrane receptors, um, but the, the joint pain and the, you know various things. Some of that can be aromatase inhibitor related potentially. I mean, there's some effects on liver and the lipid there, but I think a lot of the joint pain can be just from not having those anti-inflammatory actions. No kidding. And those, yeah, and hmm. the, yeah, estrogen. Like that's one of the things. It's it's it's. Um, Free radical quenching ability and anti-inflammatory activity is involved with why women have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. No kidding. That's okay. The disease of, of inflammation. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Uh, yeah. The vascular endothelium. So that's, uh, that's, so you can feel that on a time, on a time scale that's pretty rapid. So it's not like you've got estrogen that's going to be acting for like a month or something like that. Yeah. Um, because the whole menstrual cycle is over the course of a month. I see. And it's it's steering like menses and ovulation in that time frame. So it's I would say it's definitely shorter than a month. You okay. know, we're talking more like a week or I would say days yeah. where you're seeing substantial differences in physiological function when estrogen levels have been just ablated. You could just knock them out with letrozole. Hey, what's going on, guys? I'm going to take a brief moment to shout out our sponsors. I'll make it quick, but this stuff's super important because it's our sponsors that help to make this show possible. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here. And if it wasn't for you shopping with our sponsors, we wouldn't be here either. You can support our programming by shopping with truenutrition.com. They're our title sponsor. They've supported us for a number of years. They have awesome health and performance supplements. You can ask Skip or Dusty or Scott Stevenson all about True Nutrition and they'll tell you how good of a company they are. Hardcore bodybuilders have trusted them for over 15 years now. Use our code THINK. You'll get some savings. You'll support our programming. If you're in Canada, you can shop with supplementsource.ca. They have highly discounted supplements, discounts on bulk orders, and free shipping over $99. Check them out. And finally, you can directly support our programming on Patreon. I'll have links below for Patreon and everything else. We're taking more questions over there, and I appreciate everybody who's already helping to directly support our programming through our Patreon. All right, guys, thanks for hanging with me. Let's get back to the show. All right, listen, like I said, 
You have been summoned, Scott. We summoned yeah. Scott Stevenson for some questions. Uh, I think we okay. have one in the live feed, too. If you guys want to post anything up in the live feed, feel free. Uh, by the way, if you are watching this on YouTube, then do us a favor. Hit the like button if you enjoy our content. Uh, leave us comments. All that stuff helps to boost us up in the algorithm. And by the way, you guys are killing it with our comments. So you are much appreciated. Um, this comes to us from Nick over on Patreon. Shout out to you. So he says, um, how can you train to make muscle denser, heavier, or train to make muscle look larger? Uh, hold on a second, because I think that first part was a little confusing. He says, uh, how can you add muscle without gaining size? Like uh, keep chest, arms, legs the same number of inches. And the reverse, how can you gain size but no weight? So that you look bigger. Is this even possible? And why does Nick want to know? That's if he was like a wrestler, I could see where like you would want to be stronger. But you, you um, denser muscles gonna weigh more. I don't know. Would it? Yeah, you would want the other way around so you can be like these freakazoid, you know, pros that are in classic that look like they weigh two forty and they're like yeah, making the one eighty five weight class. Yeah, yeah. All those guys, like all those dudes. Yeah, I was. I did last year. I did a pro am, and they had classic back there. And it's like, I don't know. I was, let's say, I was two ten or something like that. I'm not sure what I what I weighed in at. Yeah. And I'm standing next to guys my same height who are supposedly like 185, <laughs> and, they, and they look like they're 30 pounds heavier than me. And I wasn't in horrible shape. Yeah. No. It's yeah. Just like, what's hollow, going on? Hollow bird bones. Something. Something. Um, no, there's not. There's. So what what he would be getting at is like you said, basically changing the density of of the muscle. Yeah. When you load up, this is where people talk about sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and myofibular hypertrophy. Um, which was so a great, sarcopla- which was a great podcast we did previously. I learned what that is. Yeah, you can too. Right. Yeah. So this the so the evidence for the sarcoplasm the most direct stuff came from the Cody Hahn study that people have talked about many times. I blabbed on about it before too. Um, they took uh, those people who showed hypertrophy in a study that on average the training regime was a very high volume one, like a reps and reserve style training um, regime, and they didn't show on average muscle growth, but they, but, but there was a one half of the, about a half, I think it was actually exactly one half of the subjects showed some muscle growth. And in those, they demonstrated um, an increase in the sarcoplasmic component, so to speak. So, the density, I mean, this is just stuff I remember off the top of my head, the density of biological protein is assumed to be 1.34. The density of water is 1 gram per milliliter, gram per cubic centimeter. Protein in of itself is 1.34. Muscle tissue is 1.06. Like These are the assumed values um, that are, are part of the body composition literature. Um, so muscle is a a little more denser than water. Fat has a density of 0.9. Um, so like if you take one being the density of water, 1.06 being like your presumed density of, of muscle and you, and you add like fill it to the brim with glycogen Mm -hmm. and you assume, you know, which is not a great assumption necessarily that you get about three grams of water for every gram of glycogen that can vary too. 
So you add a bunch of glycogen. I don't know what the density of glycogen is, but let's assume that adding glycogen and all that water means you're adding a lot of water, which has a density less than the density of muscle otherwise. You're adding a bunch of less dense stuff, the water, yeah. and you're going to volumize and you're going to make less dense muscle. Um, so that would be a one way through which you could have sarcoplasmic, quote-unquote, hypertrophy and increase the relative volume of the muscle that's made up of less dense stuff, water being the less dense than everything else. Yeah. Um, so that's one way. Just go from a flat muscle that's glycogen depleted to a fully loaded muscle, and that's going to be less dense. It's huh. not going to be, you know, like you're not going to like – you fill up. That's the whole point of carb loading is yeah. to be, be fuller and rounder. And, um, but you're also gaining weight too. And it's, and it's not like you're taking, it's like people say it looks like you injected air into the muscle, you know, like it's just like all of a sudden just, you know, air having like, you know, basically zero density, relatively speaking, doesn't obviously, but um, you're just going from a density of 1.06 to like, let's assume it's just pure water to one. That's okay. not like it's not like you're mixing like like lead and um, uh, styrofoam. Yeah, you know yeah. something really low in density and something really high in density, and like now you have a, a you know some some combination of you know half styrofoam, half lead that's got a density that's right in between, yeah. and you substantially reduce the overall density. It's no. going to be close. That's one and one point zero six are really close. That's you know that's okay. going to be undiscernible. So you will get the filling effect, then you get the rounding, yeah. you know, and you and you see the difference. That's obviously clear. If someone has like a really good glycogen load, and they they gain like eight ten pounds, and they're, they're just as dry, yeah. like a big super heavy competitor. Oh, that's tremendous! Like yes, the visual is. effect is huge, but it's not going to change the density. It would, you know, you you could see that you could you could measure that um, various ways, but it's not gonna it's not going to change. It's not going to be the, the deal breaker. The things that differentiate those guys that are like the classic physique guys who are like, like they're still like underweight by 10 pounds and look like they're overweight. And the same thing held for like all the, all the 212 guys. Like how the hell did that guy make weight? You know, I only know like Flex Lewis was, and um, what's his name? Whose name I always forget. He used to, who won several times before Flex. Dave Henry? Dave. No, not, no, not Dave only won one time. <laughs> okay. Um, Dave's main competition works over works at Bev's. Um, Steve Weinberg. Oh, not Jose. Oh, oh, uh, uh, you say it. I always forget his name. Damn, I'm looking Kevin. right at his. Thank you, Kevin. Kev yes, can't remember his last name right now. But anyway, Ke Kevin was a guy who used to like have to push oh. the weight down and then he would feel like a motherfucker. Why can't I remember his name? Um, I'm picturing him. He was like the blackest black man you could be black. Remember? Yeah, almost yeah. too dark to show exactly. the muscle Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you've got, you know, the, the, the phenomenon where those guys look like they're so much bigger. Some of that's just having flex wheeler-like joints and just round muscle bellies. They're just very balloony, um, so to speak. Kevin English. Kevin English, right? Yeah. yeah. So you know, Kevin was someone. I think Flex was someone. Dave, you know, they're at the end. Like you know, Dave. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Um, duh. Yeah. Uh, right. D Dave. I, Dave competed this year. He won the Masters overall at the um, Legion Sports Fest. You're kidding! Congratulations to him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, he ran his own thing. He did his own deal. 
Good for him. Um, but but the last, you know, he was getting up in the, he was pretty getting close to the the weight class. Okay. Limit there in like last year at the Olympia. Yeah. And so, but otherwise, like when Dave won the two hundred two, the very first two hundred two, Mister Olympia, wasn't anywhere near the limit. There's yeah. no problem. He just it has he has the it just has everything that it takes to have that physique that can win a Mister Olympia. And a lot of that is just looking much more, much bigger and more impressive than what the weight would suggest. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about it like, and I think he would admit this. So I'm not like, this is not at all meant to be like a negative, but like, like Dusty Hanshaw is a fucking ginormous guy in person. He's huge. Yeah. He's a monster. And I've seen, yeah, I've seen, and I've seen him, you know, before he was a pro card, I used to see him at the Arizona shows. Okay. I, you know, I'm, you know, I you know sat next to Dusty at shows, and um, it's been quite a while now. But he, and I saw him here in Tampa like three, four, five years ago. Just ran ran by and said hello at one of the gyms here while he was in town for one of the shows. He's a giant guy. He's yeah, just he like huge, but he doesn't have that classic like holy crap shape. So he's going to get beat by guys that weigh like forty pounds less than him. Yeah, you know, who are in just everything else being the shape, being the same, how in shape they are. He just doesn't have that shape. The I bet that like his oh. femur weighs as much as like the bone of an elephant femur. <laughs> probably is it like the same density, the same, same overall would, mass. Probably exactly the same. That's why you yeah. can do the rose he does and like not feel it. He's like, he's fine. Right. You know, <laughs> that needs to be the quote for this podcast. We need to, we need to just <laughs> the blurb that I'll put on Instagram. <laughs> But but he's a guy like he's just like and it's so, in person he's just so impressive. But when you get on stage and you're looking at things in the lights, you're looking for the flow and um, the aesthetics, the symmetry, so to speak. Yeah, it's a whole different deal. Um, so on the other side, so back to the question, you there's a there's most of the literature is like one study. Um, you can look at he's talking about making muscle more dense. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, this is just sort of a theoretical question. There's, there's not really just kind of like it's so it's a reason to talk about shit that doesn't matter, basically. Yeah, it's people kind of like asking you questions like that. They do. Yeah, like, well, what, will he, well, what kind of bullshit will he come up with? <laughs> um, so that's one of the one of the like looking at how muscle grows um, and how does contractile strength grow? Like how like if a muscle needs to is has been stimulated through progressive overload in the weight room or some some uh some environment whereby it's been been provoked to become stronger does it just get bigger you know it can be it can become stronger and be able to accommodate whatever the the stimulus is whatever the stresses placed upon it are by becoming larger get a bigger motor by becoming more efficient with fuel or more capable of using fuel so you increase the concentration of the enzymes of energy metabolism or shift their relative concentration. So it becomes more endurance oriented, or you can also shift, you can change the motor out basically grade the motor down into a more, um, actually it's sort of like changing the gears huh. in a way, um, by changing the myosin composition. So you have type one, type two, a type two X myosin in humans. Um, mainly like there's some, other stray forms you find like in the jaw muscle and that kind of stuff. But those are the main ones in skeletal muscle. And, but it's not just one, it's not just three years. There actually is a, there's a, there's a blend. So if you look, if you could pull out a fiber 
you would actually see a blend of those different types of myosin all kind of throughout the muscle and the myofibrils, which is really pretty cool. Um, uh, you think it might be disruptive to producing force, but it gives sort of a continuum of relative speed of contraction yeah. and relative efficiency of contraction if you're measuring work. So type one is going to be give you a lot more force relative to the ATP, but it's going to give you a lower rate of ATP use. So you can't like contract really fast or very powerfully with a type one myosin. Um, but you have very, you can, you can have good endurance and you can, you can maintain um, in a more efficient manner force production with that. So you can change the myosin composition. You can change the enzymes or you can change the size. And one of the things that was thought, you know, way back in the day was like, well, maybe, maybe if you're looking at the, the cross section of the muscle and you see all the little, I always think of it as like a spaghetti can that you've got dry spaghetti in. If you okay. pull out one of those spaghetti strands, that would be a myofibril. And if you look at that really close, you would see the little Z lines in there between the sarcomeres. Yeah. So along the length of a myofibril. And then you would see the actin and the myosin. And the myosin that's in there could be variable. Hmm. Depending on, you know, if the muscle's been going from inactive to more active or from one kind of activity to another. Um, so you can get fiber type shifts in that way. And it happens in humans, too. It does it takes a little while, but you, it will happen. Um, so the question was, if we look at the, the spaghetti can and those those spaghetti strands um, are spaced. So there's a packing density to those. Like how how close are they to one another? Yeah. And. The question was, you know, do you see a change in packing density when muscles grow? And except for the case where you've got like massive inflammation because the, you've got an injury that the muscle is trying to recover from and it's just swollen and inflamed. So there's fluid within it. The sarco That would be a form of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, so to speak. Yeah, I guess Cells so. now larger, but a very, very cute one. It's not if it's just inflammation that will recede. But you can't, there's a couple studies, but this is not the typical thing, showing a change in packing density huh. um, and showing a lessening of that. Um, but that's, that's not the overall picture that the, that the, um, the stuff that I've seen um, in, in any of the models of muscle growth, the, the stretch overload or the compensatory hypertrophy or resistance training or anything else. It's pretty much it stays the same because it's a very you know it's a it's a very intricate lattice, and that would th that would interrupt all sorts of aspects of the way that which the 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 myofibrils are sliding against one another and movement of um, things like creatine. There's a creatine phosphate shuttle, so creatine creatine phosphate has to slide back has to move diffuse back and forth through there to provide creatine to CPK to provide ATP. So. That would be like, that would be like switching. Okay, this is not the best analogy, but it's like switching from two by fours to using four by fours for your building, and the whole building is like set up with everything with two by fours in there. Now you go to four by fours, and it's like, oh shit, we just threw the spacing off of all the walls, and like now we've got like you know ten ten rooms in a row, and now we've got ten times those two extra inches. It's not really two inches with the four by four, but. Um, and you got to add all that together. It's like, oh fuck, we just screwed up the whole blueprint. Yeah. This is just crazy, you know. So it, the packing density stays pretty consistent. So you can't change density, um, make things more dense by increasing packing density, or that doesn't typically happen. Okay. Um, from what I recall seeing in the literature when I looked at it. Okay.
And regardless, let's just get bigger, get stronger. I, I, I do think he was just asking like for yeah. you know, just a hypothetical type thing. We, we had one other but, one here from Ted. Well, here's well, one thing like that's more like down to earth, so less like sort of out there in the in the outer science outer space. Like a guy's got someone says he has dense muscle. Yeah. That just means you're leaner and you've got good development. So yeah. You've got good lines and delineation between the muscle. That would be the so best what, way to stay the same size and grow more muscle would be to lose. I mean, it would be to lose body fat because he was talking about the circumference. He doesn't want the circumference to change. If you were to get leaner, then the circumference will be more likely to shrink. So you have more room to add muscle and stay the yeah. same. Yeah. It's just the muscle density thing is not. Here's the thing. Like if you people think about, you know, like the here's we just we might as well cover it. Like so striations. Yeah. What you're seeing there is just um, they're probably the fascicles of fibers. It's the outer surface of the muscle. And those those little bumps that you see as a striations, like across the chest or a, a lateral thigh or what have you. Those aren't individual muscle fibers. The so muscle fibers aren't like, you know, like I just happened to have, because I had sushi last night here at home, um, chopstick. Yeah. So like, like this is like, you could, there's like, this would be the size of a muscle bot. There would be like hundreds of fibers across the diameter of this. Okay. Muscle fibers are itsy bitsy, teensy weensy. You can barely see them with the naked eye if you look really close. Okay. And you've got good vision. So, this would be like the, uh, the size of which, you know, the, if you had a bunch of chopsticks lined up, right, and you see the line between the chopsticks, that would be where you might see a striation across the pec or something like that. Well, there's hundreds and hundreds of muscle fibers in there. So what you're seeing in those, those you know, when you say, well, I can see the individual fibers, it's like, no, you can't. There's just <laughs> no way. It would be, yeah, they're just, they're much, much, like a, a muscle fiber is like 40 microns. Um, in diameter, roughly pi r squared. Yeah, forty something like that. And yeah. a red blood cell is eight microns. Okay. So five red blood cells across would be like you know the radius. You could like five, ten red blood cells across the whole diameter of a muscle cell, and that's a really big cell. Yeah. And you can't see like the red blood cells. If you could see these. Then you like when you bled, you could see like you'd be like you know little tadpoles out of a bucket. You pour and, like oh look, I can see my red blood cells. You'd be able to see them right there, like you know. Yeah. Um, you can see bundles of fibers. How about that? You can see bundles can see of the, fibers. Yeah, and it's just the way that you know some people have the the epimecium there is shaped that way, the outer fascia of the muscle. Yeah. And some people it's not, and that's just you know, and that can get disrupted by injections. Yeah. People will lose the glute striations by doing you know injections and, and scar tissue there, but. The, the striations are not a function of actually seeing the muscle fibers. That's a total other, it's a whole, whole quantum. That's a whole, um, scale below. Okay. Let me yeah. see here. I think we have another one here. Um, you sent me today. I think so. Um, thoughts on injectable, lipotropic compounds he says usually a blend of vitamin b's l-carnitine uh cloline i don't know what that is choline inositol Mm -hmm. and methionine uh my endo offers uh lipo minnow from olympia and amino asylum has shredder 
I know the B vitamins and L-carnitine are effective. Just wondering about the the MIC blend added in. Uh, what would dosing frequency be? So, so what's, what's in question here? Because he's saying he understands the benefits of the L-carnitine and the B vitamins. So things like methionine. I don't know what I don't know what these benefits would be uh, injectably. Injectably? So, Is that a word? <laughs> As an injectable? Yeah. Injectably? I like that word. That's injectably. a good word. It's yeah. You're you're doing what I do in German. I just make up words that seem like <laughs> that should work. Um so those are if you look at all of those, like just in general and with without going through you know what the B vitamins do. They're involved with enzymes. Like vitamins are generally asked. They're they're essential. We can't make them, and those they're why we need them is because they are generally components of enzymes. And enzymes are, of course, what direct our metabolism. All the reactions of our body are things that would would happen in and of themselves, or that would happen with the energy that we use yeah. um, from our food. And the enzymes are catalysts that direct the flow. So like if you take food and let's say you eat a carb source, the glucose gets into your blood, gets into the blood cell, and then it goes into the gly- into glycolysis. All the enzymes there that someone would learn about if they took the basic bio class, they'd, they'd have to kind of know that when they went into a physiology class. Those enzymes are just catalyzing reactions and make so they go happen more quickly. And some of them need a little bit of energy. There's a little energy input that goes into glycolysis, but the end-all be-all is that you end up being able to drive energy from the bonds of those foods, and it's the enzymes that allow that to happen. So when people say, you know, B vitamins give you energy, um, there's some truth to that and that the B vitamins are part of enzymes of metabolism. And like L-carnitine is the one we can kind of talk about the most because we covered it before. I still have that article um, that's going to come out on John's site. We can have a whole podcast where we talk about this. Cool. I'm kind of waiting. There's still, there's still, there's John's site is still up and running. For anyone who doesn't know yes. or hasn't been there, it's like 12 years of archives. I think I have 12 different uh, articles on that site, um, and they're all still timely and valid like there's one that's all about it's called all about muscle and it covers all sorts of cool muscle physiology and histology some of the stuff we talked about today i joined specifically to get an article was it called how to shred a bodybuilder was that was that the title of it oh one of the peak week ones yeah yeah, yeah it was a so, great like there's two it was a two-part article i specifically joined to read those it was great it, it was oh, totally worth it yeah you can join like literally you can join for a month yeah What's it like? Fifteen bucks or something? Twelve yeah, bucks? Or it's not remember. much. Not very much. And then you can like go and like you could just like say I'm going to spend all day today just like getting stuff, and then you, you can have them, download them, whatever. Like John's to- John was totally fine with that. Um, and then you can just just uh, you know end your membership, and then you got stuff to read for six months or whatever. I've done that. So, I've done that at that site. Yeah. Like I'd been a member for several months and then stopped and then mm-hmm. was like, you know what? I wanted to learn some more. So I went back and got a month membership and then just consumed yeah. a bunch of stuff and figured out what I needed to and then moved on, you know? So they're like the team, you know, Chris Edmonds and, um, uh, um, well, 
all the guys. I, I think Noah, who's who's videographer, was there. He's going to yeah. stay there, and um, I think everyone who stills on the team is. They're they're putting stuff out. The videos and the everything is still going. So it's kind of a Andrew's minus of it, John, right? of course. Yeah, Andrew, of course. Yeah, he's still writing things. He's doing like he's doing the in the trenches stuff. I think they've got some other things coming from. I don't want to say anyone's name because I'm not sure what's going to happen, but um, from some of John's former clients who are sort of carrying on John's energy and using his training programs, that kind of stuff. So that's cool. Like more like practical application stuff. Anyway, my article come out. I'm sort of waiting because they haven't quite got the social media chain um, up and running. Like the train's still kind of like you know. Yeah. So plodding along. Yeah, yeah, and um, just giving it a little bit of time. Uh, but that, the L-carnitine article will come out. So the L-carnitine, for instance, like he says, he knows L-carnitine is effective. Um, injectable L-carnitine, if given enough for a long enough period of time, will elevate L-carnitine levels. But as will come out in the article and as we talked about, and I mentioned a couple other podcasts now too, that has a direct negative impact on thyroid action at the cellular level. So while L-carnitine is involved with bringing in fatty acids from outside to inside the mitochondria, what it does, and if you have higher levels of that L-carnitine acyltransferase levels, which you can get by taking L-carnitine, orally will do it as well, injectables a little bit, a little bit faster probably, you've also got a scenario where while the L-carnitine, at least while it's elevated in your blood, you're going to reduce metabolism. And I finally got, Victoria sent me that article in German. Oh, yeah from like 1956 where they treated people with hyperthyroidism um, with Graves and they were able to reduce metabolism by like, like metabolic rate by like 50% with a standard typical dose taken orally, like a couple grams a day. Holy shit. So it has a massive potentially negative impact on slowing your metabolism. So, Let's say, you know, those numbers won't necessarily pan out because that was a hyperthyroid situation, not euthyroid. But let's say someone um, decides that they're going to just sort of try to load carnitine at, I don't know, five grams a day. Yeah. So they put a gram in each of their five meals. So they're constantly elevated. And they do that, you know, say 20 hours out of the day. Like they spread it throughout their meals. And they've got a few hours maybe in the, the wee hours of the morning where there's no L-carnitine having this effect. And let's say that in doing that, I'm just like ballparking numbers. This is coming from the, the ballpark ideas that come from that study that, that Victoria is able to get for me. Let's say they drop the metabolism. I don't know. Let's say 25%. Okay. And there's someone who's a pretty big person. Their basal metabolic rate is 2,000 calories a day. It's 25%, which is, as far as I can tell, pretty possible, is going to be about 500 calories that they've reduced their energy expenditure. They're using more fat, but now they're using 500 calories less a day. That's your whole caloric deficit right there. Yeah. Just wow. shot in the foot. So that's a potential negative effect of, of the L-carnitine. Um, inositol has some, there's some nice effects. Go to examine.com and you can look some of these things up. Hmm. Um, methionine is, you know, it's a uh, sulfur containing amino acid. So it's very unique. And, and because there's lots of um, enzymatic reactions that are uniquely specific to having that sulfur-containing amino acid there. It's a specific site of, um, of, metabol it's of metabolic importance. We'll just kind of leave it at that. So that's pretty cool. But in, 
if you have an absorption issue, which is possible, that's why they use like B, B12 injections with people. Yeah. Um, if they have an absorption issue or if someone's a vegetarian, so they're eating no uh, so food sources of B12. So it has to come from animal products. Um, they would inject B12. Normally it's stored in the liver and you have like, like a year or two worth of, of um, storage form. But mm. that can eventually sort of recede. And you can have people that because they're deficient in the vitamin, get an injection of B12 and they feel much better. I had that happen myself um, in the past. I could, I could tell yeah. a difference, but, but I was at the time deficient. I needed it. Right. Yeah. It's pretty dramatic. It's like, oh, wow, the veil lifted. I feel so much better now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like what happened with me with vitamin D when I took some. Yeah, which I had that at another point as well. It, it, it was huge, man. But, but yeah. you know, it gets linked with energy. And so then people start right. thinking, hey, I'm going to take a B12 shot and I'm going to get this crazy energy from it. And the reality is, yeah, in most cases, you already had enough. It's not, That's it's where not, I'm going. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no. You're like, don't only interrupt you because we're on the same page. I was just going to say it's not drug-like. It's not like testosterone where now you have three times the amount of testosterone that's built up in your system and you're, you know, able to utilize it from what I understand is you just pee out the rest. It's just gone. Yeah. That's the, that's, that's actually super important that you bring that up. So if you go from a deficiency to a normal level of testosterone, you're going to feel a dramatic difference. Anyone who's been hypothyroid or hypogonadal and they've gone on TRT, they're like, Oh shit. Wow. This is so much better. And if you're deficient in a vitamin and you get supplemented with that or remedy the deficiency, let's say you have an oral malabsorption problem um, and you inject vitamin B12, like, wow, oh my gosh, this is great. Or vitamin D, name the vitamin. I think probably with, with most vitamins, if you're truly deficient and you, and you, you, but by that time you've noticed it, you can tell it's impacting how, your lifestyle and how you feel and you, and you, um, rectify the, the deficiency, you're good. You're a happy yeah. camper. Um, but taking more isn't necessarily going to do what taking more testosterone would because um, you can get small, like creatine and L-carnitine are two examples uh, where you can elevate the levels and you're elevating creatine like, you know, maybe 40% above where a starting point would be. Or if you're a vegetarian, it might be a little bit more than that because you're not getting creatine in your food um, or vegetarians also have a problem with B12. Well, these are all meat sources too. So you can, the vegetarians run this, they, they've got to really be careful, you know, yeah. because they're not, they're missing some things in meat that our bodies are sort of engineered to, to want to have to make use of, but you're not going to, you're not. And with the L-carnitine, that's the thing why people doubted it for so long. It's like, it's basically kind of acting like a vitamin in a sense, because it's a component, at least in terms of fat metabolism, it's a component of an enzyme okay. like the vitamins are. So if you're, if you're feeding things into metabolism um, that are requisite parts, it's helpful. So let's say, you're, like, let's say you, your metabolism is such that you have the equivalent of 10 workers on your construction site and they can build buildings or outhouses or whatever your metabolism builds. Mr. Olympia's, you know, or also Rand's in the local show, whatever they can only build at a certain rate and bringing them more bricks and more two by fours and more nails and having more tools is not going to allow them to move any faster than what, what they need. Yeah. So if you give them a, you give them like, 
all right, we got a shipment of 500 hammers, guys. You should be kicking ass now. It's like there's only 10 of us. Yeah. only got two hands. Like the other, you know, 480 hammers aren't doing us any good, you know, and having two, a hammer in each hand is, isn't of, of use either. So, yeah. yeah, you just piss it out. Whereas with, with testosterone, now we've got a dose response curve that's different hmm. than what you have with, with vitamins. We're basically replenishing the deficiency supplies things now now instead of delivering hammers like now you're bringing um you know methamphetamine to the work site yeah and now you've got a pharmaceutical pharmacological effect driving those guys to perform more so now they're like you don't care about them we're going to burn them out let's just put them on 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 meth and they're going to work twice as hard 24 hours a day for the next six months and they're not going to sleep because they just that's how it works so that's a drug-like effect. That's different than a dietary supplementation effect. Yeah. So what what's happening here is, um, you know, there's some things with that with that come with deficiencies of all those things in the in parentheses, the B vitamins, carnitine, choline, and acetyl methionine. But providing more of those could have some benefit above what you might normally get if you're someone who's, of course, if you're someone who's deficient or has malabsorption. But it's not going to be a, a massive effect. But what can be absolutely massive is the placebo effect, of course. Mm. So, and it's it's funny. Like I went and I you sent me this just today, and I went and I looked. Um, I looked actually for see if someone had put together like a sort of a scientific um, critique of injectable vitamins. I still didn't find anything. You know, just kind of a cursory look through the the literature on Google Scholar. Uh, just to see, like, does someone kind of attack this and go after it? But what I did find, just Googling around, I went to regular Google, and I felt I found the ads, so to speak, for clinics that offer these things. Oh, yeah. And they're like, they're like L-carnitine. I was like, what do they say about L-carnitine? Will increase your fat burning, increase your metabolism, increase your energy, increase your performance, increase your strength, increase your endurance. Like it's like it does everything. Yeah. It was like the the best supplement of all time. And I'm like, and not a single reference was given. Not a single one. And I'm like, they're just saying this. Yeah. As as an authority, as doctors. So the expectancy, the placebo effect is really, really powerful when you say something does all that stuff and you're on a website and you're a licensed medical professor uh, professional. And here's the here's the kicker. So if what if I said I said Scott I'm going to give you some creatine. Um, this got stuff's got all the scientific literature supporting its use. You don't eat a lot of meat, you know. I know you've just been using whey protein, you know. So we're, you know, you're probably a little low. Um, here you go. Here's the bottle. Just take this. You know, have have two grams in the morning, two grams at night, and you know, we'll we'll should load you up in the next week. And you're like, okay, well, cool. Yeah. And you knew nothing about the literature. You're like, okay, well, sounds pretty good, I believe, Scott. What if I said, here's what we're going to do, Scott. Um, I need you to come to my office every day and we're going to sit you down, prep your vein, put a needle in there and then spend, give you attention for an hour and, and talk about your health and talk about your well-being and check in with you while we actually infuse something directly into your veins. I need to we're get that. I need that. That yeah. one. That's the one I need. <laughs> That's Scott. the one you That's want, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one you want. And I, they do this in so many studies. It's very, very important. Um, the placebo, 
or the control uh, group is usually an attentional control. So they do this like huh. when they look at the um, there's like an anxiolytic like it just popped in my head. One of the, the main studies we always see this is important. Like look at the psychological benefits of exercise. Yeah. And so you bring one group in and like, you know, like let's say let's have one group resistance train. The other group's going to do aerobic training and the other group. Well, we just do nothing. Right. Well, no, because there's an attentional effect just going in. We're very social animals. You know, when you go into like when you go to a massage therapist or an acupuncturist or a physician or anyone like women. And I, I can't blame I cut my own hair, which is pretty obvious. People always make fun of my hair. So please do. I love it. It shows me the level at which you're functioning when you're like all you can do is comment on my hair. Um, but it's nice to go in and get pampered. Right. Like I haven't had a haircut for a while, but if you go get your nails done, yeah. like any of those services, it's just there's an attentional effect. You get the you get the tinglys, right? It's just a nice thing. I guess it depends well, what kind of treatment you're getting, but yes, uh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. There's the happy ending massage, that sort of thing. But literally anything where someone is um, giving you a sort of personalized attention, yeah. Aside from maybe a dentist, yeah. you know. <laughs> Um, depending on what you're having done, you know, uh, or maybe a lawyer, you know, cause they're usually just bending you over because <laughs> it costs so much to see lawyers most of the time. No offense to Rick Collins. I love you, Rick, but you know, lawyers have a bad rap. They have an attentional control, which is where I'm going. I see a question brewing there. The, 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 the question was, the, I, it was almost intentional. I was like, go with yeah, it. Know, tell me, tell me. Right, yeah. So the intent, they have these attentional controls and they bring people in and they try to do something with them that 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 accounts for that attentional effect uh-huh. of having made the way in and they're going like if you go all the way in to get run through a training regime with a group of people and they're examining the beneficial effects of x y or z you're expecting that there's going to be a beneficial effect in fact you're looking for it yeah you've got yeah. a placebo so they want to bring you in and they usually they try not to tell them and so like the attention the attentional control will be <clears throat> I don't know, they give you something to read or they, they spend time with you in some way that is supposed to kind of uh, shift, like account for the fact that you're there with the experimenters interacting with them. Yeah, okay. So you go in for an injectable treatment like this and you may have no physiological deficiency whatsoever and there may be you know, nothing really that is, or even, there, or even let's say there is, but let's say that you are a little bit low on some of these things and you do have a beneficial effect. And the placebo literature has examined this too. This is what's really cool. This is all kind of flowing. This is now that I think about this more, I never thought of it this way, but so you do have a little bit of a positive benefit. And then you, and then you, you, you remedied that with one or two injections. You're good to go. You got your B12. Let's say it's B12. You do B12. And now you got enough B12 to, to run you for a couple months at least. Yeah. You're not going to be in a deficient situation that would anyway adversely affect your energy levels or shift your metabolism but you felt that so now you know this shit works now you've got a full-blown expectancy effect Mm -hmm. so they've done that for instance with the one study that comes to mind is they they used um and i got your i know you got a question still so i'm not having no 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 question no question Oh, okay but they have um you can use like a lidocaine on the skin yeah and then um so what they did was they intentionally get, asked people to do pain ratings where they put their arm in an ice bath. Okay. Um, and they get and I, and it's very, very, it's, it's very painful. Actually, just put your hand in there. 
it doesn't feel comfortable, you really want to get your arm out of there after a while. I bet. Um, yeah, I mean, they don't let people, you know, become damaged, but, you know, that's, you know, you're heading towards frostbite, or you, you feel like you are at least. Um, so then they could numb that with lidocaine. So they put, a, you know, lidocaine on there. So you put your hand in there, and then and, and you, you, they, they kind of tell you what's, what's going on, I think, to some degree. You know, this is a numbing thing. So then you're numb. And um, and they get your get the values. You know your perceived pain was you know went from a nine down to a three. Yeah. You know, and you're aware of this because you're giving the ratings, and you can feel it. It's very obvious. You compare the first time with the last time, and then they bring you back again. And now they rub some stuff on your arm, and they ask you to put your hand down there, and you're like, ah, it's a three. Yeah. But the second time, it was just a placebo cream. It was nothing. Huh. But you expect that there's going to be a numbing effect. Yeah. Because you perceived it already. So now you go in, and you uh, you got a little bit of a beneficial, healthful effect that you that you could perceive the first time from your injectable vitamins, whatever it might be, and you noticed it. And it could it could just be anything. I mean, it could be just you get a little bit of wooziness that you know that you that gives you the sense that something's happening. Um, like that's what they did in that favorite placebo effect of mine with uh, that Gideon Ariel did with the, um, with the Diana ball. Yeah. They brought them in the students into the health center and they said like, here's all the, you know, adverse effects of steroids. So be on the lookout. You know, this shit's, this shit's powerful, yeah. you know, and it could, it could, so you're like, okay, here it is. So, you know, if you go in and like, let's say you get an IV put in and you, you know, you get a little bit vasovagal because you don't like having needles stuck in your arm or what have you. And like, Oh, okay. You've just had, you know, you're undergoing a medical treatment. Yeah. yeah. You just had something invasively put inside you. That's a huge deal. So that's different than like, here's the bottle of, of this, you know, powder that does, has no taste, you know, that create and you just, just take it. You know, you don't even really know. You're not going to see anything happen. You're not paying attention to your weight because you got rid of your scale, you know, let's say. Um, then it's like, compare that with, we're going to give you creatine infusions, and I want you to weigh yourself every day because we're going to start packing on the weight here. We're going to volumize your muscle, baby, and you should probably gain like, you know, you're probably a pound a day doing this. You're going to part paying attention to those things. All that feeds into this. So, so we talked about placebos here for a little while, and I, can, yeah. I, I don't even know. Are you telling us that these products don't work? Um, that's, that's exactly where I was going. So if you're going to go in... <laughs> The L-carnitine, there's issues there. Yeah. Um, the B vitamins, those will work if you have a deficiency. Um, Linositol and choline and methionine, I would go in and ask those medical professionals. It's like, do we have blood work to suggest that I'm deficient in those things? Reach out to Amino Asylum and ask the medical medical professionals there. <laughs> that's what that's that's what Scott suggests you guys do. Yeah. Well, it'll probably, you know, they probably well, have say. the FDA that's not, not for treating medical things. But if they're, if it's an, if you, if it's an inject, if, it's, if they're putting this, into, putting this intravenously into your body um, and you're getting this from medical professionals. Yeah. He's getting um, it. He said that, it was from his doctor or amino asylum, which is a website yeah. that we have a think, code for oh, code think. Yeah. They have an injectable there. So yeah, they they're, they're not going to, they're not, not going to suggest it. Not for human consumption yeah. though. Right. 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 So exactly. But ask the doctor. So what do we, you know, what do we, how do we know? Are we going to follow, are we going to follow my labs? Great question. Yeah. It's funny how 
we don't even want to question the doctors and some of the times because they just blow you off but like they're the ones like so so doc you gave me these drugs what are we treating what's your di differential diagnosis and they well, we don't really have one so we're just we're just masking symptoms yes it's like okay thank you for being honest with me i'm glad you told me that <laughs> yeah because you know that's kind of what like what the, where that would go when you call them on a differential diagnosis so here if they're treating something, there should be lab work or some indication that's led them to believe that you have a deficiency. If not, then they're trying to um, sort of supercharge your metabolism. And the question as to how much and how regularly you'd have to get that done hmm. should be reflective on either some literature that shows on average that this is what it takes to like creatine loading. We know this. Yeah. We know you're going to hold like 20 to 40 grams of that creatine on average and you could load with the you know, 20 grams a day for five days, that'll get you there. You can load with like three or four, five grams a day for a month. That'll get you there. You know, there's numerous ways to fill the tank. Yeah. You know that. So if they're, if they're trying to fill the tank in terms of each of these ingredients in the infusion, just ask the questions like, so doc, what literature could you, could you, you have a pamphlet of the literature to show me, you know, what biological effects we're having here? Um, you know, how do we know how much, how often to use of these things? Yeah. You know, and there should be, you know, it should be pretty clear. It's like there's a drug. That's why you have a, you know, the FDA has a drug pamphlet that you can read for any drug that you get prescribed. And, you know, it's funny if you go look, if you look in the, in the physician's desk reference, the PDR, mm -hmm. and look at drugs, like when you look for the mechanism of action, it's most of the time it's unknown. It's not entirely known. There's be a mm. lot of like, you know. I've seen um, that a lot with medications. It's, it's most, most of the time, actually. It's sort of like, oh, we're. And we binds to it binds to um, GABA or whatever. Ga but like, GABA, we don't... GABA <laughs> dopaminergic, serotonergic binds to every receptor type in the brain, basically. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's kind of like you know there was this little thing inside the barn that we wanted to get rid of. So what do we do? We'll just light the whole fucking barn on fire, and it go it's gone, right? We don't know how it works, but there's nothing left. No barn. So no barn. No barn. And the thing there's inside no of it is gone. Yeah, it's, it's gone. So that's how some drugs work. So, so you've got all sorts of things going on here. So I, I you know, as far as knowing that the L-carnitine, people do seem to have good effects with that. Yeah. And I think some of that is that while that negative effect may be taking hold, if you, if you, the, 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 the idea would be, and I don't know, this is where I want to kind of, and I'm going to do this and try to, if I can, and finish in the article, figure out how to load the L-carnitine without inhibiting your metabolism. Ah, yes. Or minimally inhibiting your metabolism. So get in, get out, get the loading effect, but don't chronically, superfluously, excessively try to elevate L-carnitine levels throughout the day and thereby suppress metabolic rate yeah. when you're not getting any greater loading effect from doing so. Huh, yeah. That's the thing that, you know, that, that I think is to watch out for. So that's why L-carnitine can work. Right. Like just many, many things can work. Um, you know, if you if you have a headache, you could take maybe two aspirin a day and you're good to go. But you don't need to take 20 aspirin a day and then end up having, you know, bleeding, a bleeding stomach because you destroyed your gastric lining. Yeah. From the aspirin. So devil's in the dose, as they say. Yeah. I was using 400 L-carnitine per day taken sub Q. And then I backed it down to 200 and 200 most days, I'll say 200, like five days a week. Right. And I don't seem to see any difference in uh, using that, but I do feel like it is like I get a cognitive 
boost from it. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. But, and I, I did go down after we had talked about the potential issues it could cause. Yeah. It would be interesting to see, you know, um, not medical advice, but, uh, if you could microdose the L-carnitine throughout the day. So like you've got a dose response there. If, if you've got a subjective concept, uh, cognitive effect. Yeah. So 400 grams gives you the same, 200 grams gives you the same as 400 grams. Does 100 grams, or sorry, not grams, milligrams give you the same? Does 50 give you the same? If, if your dose response is here yeah. and like, you know, you peak out at like say 25 milligrams. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you could do, you know, just, whatever load in an insulin syringe and just do a little, little bit of a blip of a, of a dose throughout the day. Um, and keep the, and that would probably load the L-carnitine. I don't, I'd have to look and see to see how much that would predictably elevate carnitine relative to what you would typically get in meat or food. Yeah. But that's probably closer. That may be very, you know, very much like what it would be to get the L-carnitine from having, you know, a sizable portion of meat in each of your meals. And you may get the cognitive benefits there. And that's the thing that like the, the relative dose response for creatine loading versus impairing metabolism isn't known. So it may be that, you know, there's a threshold level of, sorry, not creatine, but carnitine loading, um, which is below any substantial metabolic impairment. Yeah. And you can, so you, you might be able to simultaneously both at once with the right dose. I don't know haven't seen the data. So the other way to do it is to just s- s- separate those things, load and then have a period where there's no loading, you know, and that's kind of what you're doing. You're doing lower, a smaller load, smaller periods, like one injection a day or most days, like you said, mm-hmm. but I wonder what would happen if you did, you know, um, let's say you do, let's say you do half the days of a week on average, 200 milligrams. What if you did a hundred milligrams every day, but in four 25 milligram doses? Yeah. As an example. Yeah. Pain in the ass. Yeah, I probably but wouldn't do that, better. but I understand. I understand the idea of it, though. Yeah. I have yeah. a hard enough time yeah. taking it once. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But if you if it really made a big difference in your brain fog, you know. Yeah. What's up, Luke? What's the most anabolic cereal? Cereal gains nation. It's still, it's still happening. Yep. I what's, would have to say. What's he reaching for? Th- th- this could be it right here. What is that? Fruity dino bites? <laughs> Those are this is the generic fruity pebbles. Ah. Yeah, I just had this today after my workout, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is like super cheap. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, off brand. Well, when pebbles. you're eating that much cereal, you have to figure out the budget. You don't want to go with that fancy name brand stuff every time, I'm sure. I can't tell any difference. No, it's, I think it's it's the same shit. It's yeah. probably yeah. They just put it in a different box. You know, it's got. Well, be. there's no box for that. It's like just oh, different. A different bag. Yeah, <laughs> they don't even put that well, one in the box. It's like you know the old school. It's true nutrition, true protein stuff. You know. Yeah. You know, you're like, why pay for the fancy container where you can just get the food grade bag? You got some bags right here. Yeah. Right. Why? Why? I got, I got some. Get all the citrulline you want in the bag <laughs> why pay for the plastic yeah i'm not sure if this is something that uh would be up your alley uh we had somebody ask uh we actually would see if we can bump through a couple of them here sure, um oh, where 
Where did you go? Where did you go? There we are. Okay, this one, this one. Okay, there was another one that was like a drug question, but here we go. Uh, may I ask you something, Doc? Uh, how about limiting the carbs after a hit cardio session, uh, such a such as a few wind gates to promote mitochondrial biogenesis? Yeah, I mean, there's. Um, after actually might have an effect what seems to have from this is i haven't looked at this for a, a long while but it's a, a cool and a very good question what seems to have the effect on on sort of creating a, an additional stimulus for mitochondrial biogenesis is limiting carbohydrate in the diet so you don't have glycogen available so you're on a high fat diet or a low carb diet and you don't have glycogen available. So the body has to rely upon fat for energy as, as a fuel during endurance exercise or HIIT. Can you back so, up for a minute and explain yeah, yeah, sure. mitochondrial biogenesis? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Super fancy. Such a fancy term. Um, that just means um, making more mitochondria, in this case, in skeletal muscle. Okay. So the, the mitochondria are the energetic powerhouses of the of the cell. This is kind of the basic bio of it. That's where aerobic metabolism happens. Okay. So a basic adaptation to endurance training it happens to um, to resistance training, depending on how you train. Some studies show actually dilution of the mitochondria, so the muscle gets bigger and the mitochondrial mass stays the same. That would be like if you're doing just like heavy, heavy, like powerlifting would probably do that in most cases. Um, but if you do like a higher rep stuff or like like lots of Widowmakers or lots, lots of Widowmakers <laughs> or pump sets, or if you're really going to town with a higher volume type of training, um, you're going to get some mitochondrial biogenesis. But to really focus on that, that's a, the, your basic endurance exercise adaptation or high intensity interval training. So how much mitochondria you get is a function of duration of training, so the volume you do, as well as intensity. <clears throat> and you can evoke, by doing sprints, like one-minute sprints or high-intensity intervals, doing a series of those, like a Wingate, which is a 30-second sprint, you could do a series of those and really, really strongly increase mitochondrial biogenesis. This is, I'll cite the paper, Dudley, 1980, that's the one, um, Dudley and Turyong. That was like one of the basic papers that my mentor did way back in the day when he was in, in grad school where they looked at intensity and duration in terms of its impact on myochondrial biogenesis, succinate dehydrogenase, citrate synthase, classic study with rats. They varied the, the velocity of training, they varied the duration of training, and both of those impact this. So that's like a basic adaptation. What happens too, and you're kind of like, you're picking hairs here. This is a, like a strategy that they've looked into for endurance athletes is if you train with low carbs um, and you're running in a low carb situation, your body doesn't have those carbs. It's good. You're, 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 you will oxidize the fuel that's available. So the higher the glycogen levels are, the more carbohydrate in your fuel mix. Yeah. If you're eating carbs or you're taking carbs during your exercise, more carbohydrates will be in your fuel mix. On the contrary, if you if you're if you're exercising fasted, 
after you've been on a low carbohydrate diet and your glycogen levels are low, you're going to use more fat. The thing with fat is that you can only oxidize fat at a certain rate, which is lower than the rate that you can oxidize carbohydrate. That's just simply the way hmm. our, our enzymes are geared, so to speak. So any, any given exercise um, intensity or stress, generally speaking, of an, especially of an endurance nature or an inter interval nature like this, is going to be more difficult. You can feel it. Um, it's going to be harder. It's going to be relatively more difficult. It's going to be relatively more stressful on the energy systems, the aerobic energy systems in the mitochondria. So being low carb before you exercise um, or having no carbs, definitely no carbs coming in, means you're going to shift the fuel use to fats. And you, don't, you can oxidize, um, you can break down glucose or carbohydrates with glycolysis. That doesn't happen. Anaerobic glycolysis gives you ATP really fast. And doesn't involve the, the mitochondria. If the if that the glucose the molecules of glucose are broken down and make their way in the mitochondria, and you get lots more ATP, but at a slower rate, um, that's aerobic glycolysis. And if you've got like hardly any carbs available, and all you have is fat to use, then you're going to be using mitochondrial respiration, oxidative phosphorylation. You're going to use be using fat as a fuel. And that means all you've got, you're basically sending the signal and all you can rely upon is fat as your fuel during exercise. Mm -hmm. That's it. So the mitochondria are put on a premium because you literally aren't running. You're not running any fuel through the, the, uh, the glycolytic chain, mm -hmm. enzymatically speaking. So it's kind of like if you've got like um, a, 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 a dual fuel car that runs on diesel and gasoline, let's say, and gas is like fat and carbs is like the diesel if you just um force it to run on just gasoline the adaptation that will happen is mitochondrial biogenesis hmm. all other things being equal because it's being forced to use only what the mitochondria can use which is fats um, whereas let's say you had a system that could either use diesel in the mitochondria or elsewhere in the in the outside the mitochondria as it can in muscle cells so um, the thing is, you know, and I don't know, I think I'd have to see if anyone's examined this. I'm sure someone did a thesis on it or something, but, um, if you exercise in a fasted, low carbohydrate state, do an exercise bout, and then look at what happens in terms of turning on mitochondrial biogenesis, like what molecular markers do you set in motion? Looking at like the mRNA for those enzymes in the mitochondria. Um, once you get that, that wheel turning, it's probably, you probably stimulated the adaptation. So you could probably take in carbs afterwards. Okay. Um, I don't know. It's hard huh. to say because if you're taking carbs afterwards, then you've shifted back to carbohydrate. You're going to start oxidizing fuel. So you, you may dampen the adaptation, but even then it's literally, it's such a minimal thing. Like if you really want to get more mitochondria, don't just do three, intervals do eight so that's then where the you, that's where the that's important where, message is 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 that's not going to be potatoes are okay. yeah it's going to be the amount of work you do versus the fuel you yeah. use to support it and the problem is too if you're running on no carbs and you can't train as hard then you're going to lose intensity very likely ah. it's just simply going to happen during high intensity interval training so that's like all that other stuff i said is like so minimal i see um in comparison to the fact that 
most of what you use on those intervals anyway is going to be, in terms of relative fuel supply, is going to be anaerobic. Okay. It's just because they're max efforts on Wingate, you're turning on everything maximally. Yeah. So this, you just get a maximal adaptation. You kind of get a, you know, you double dip. You get a lot of aerobic glycolysis. You get a lot of um, aerobic respiration, a lot of mitochondrial biogenesis too, all at the same time. If you eliminate the carbs, then you get more mitochondrial biogenesis, but you can't go nearly as hard without the carbs either. You will bonk um, hard and then, if you try to train that way for too long. So then what would be, what is our benefit then of having created more mitochondria biogenesis? Oh, then, then the idea is that carries over. So it's like, um, you don't gas out while you're training in the gym. And that's where your, that's where your, your endurance is coming from. So yeah, to some degree. So a lot of it's in the head, you know, in your mind. Um, so you take, you take someone who. Like, and they've done this, like Bill Kramer's got kind of like a classic study. They, they took powerlifters and bodybuilders, you know, where they match pretty well, you know, pretty close strength wise. Yeah. And they ran the powerlifters through a bodybuilding type uh, workout and they weren't used to doing that shit. Like in any powerlifter out there or someone who goes back <laughs> and forth, they know like they were gassing. They were, everything was elevated. Cortisol levels were higher. Lactate levels were higher. Yeah. Every, they got, they got their ass whooped because they're not used to doing that kind of stuff. So for someone who's, who's trying to put on muscle mass in, in those situations, this is how I would maybe coach somebody. If someone finds like that they, like for them, progress, progressive overload is absolutely vital. And they have, they gas out really easily. Like they're in, every once in a while you have a client that has this, like they just feel like they, they don't have the they don't have the the respiratory the, the the lungs to power through like a high rep squat widowmaker or mm-hmm. you know some of the higher rep sets it just turns off They're, yeah they just you know and you like you're running this a little bit with the covid you know like this is like that's kind of your limiting factor you would then want to train that yeah you know in a way that that as much as possible doesn't interfere with the gains you can make and the strength you can get. So if you like, so I'm going to just get all the mitochondria I can. I'm going to do like, you know, 15 wind, wind gates seven days a week. Well, then you'll be whacked. You won't be able to train in the gym. Yeah. Because you've just, you've gobbled up all your reserve capacity in doing that. Um, but if, uh, you know, if you're someone who has a desk job and you're not, you've never been terribly aerobically inclined and, Maybe you're a lot, you got a lot of type two. It might be worth your while to do, like, let's say, do your leg training. And intervals are going to be the least likely in the right amount to interfere with growth. So, hmm. as opposed to like doing an hour, like at lactate threshold, as hard as you can, is going to probably have, could potentially have a very powerful interference effect on muscle growth. Okay. Whereas doing like three Wingates. And wind yeah. gates are a beast. 30 seconds all out is... It's, it's all like, you have. You know, you know, they're, it's all it's you tough. got, man. They'll destroy you. Or like a minute is just mind-boggling. You're just... You're at, you're at your wit's end. But if you structure those, like put those in after your leg training, let's say, yeah. or in a way that doesn't interfere with your training um, so that you can recover afterwards, you can get an increased mitochondrial biogenesis um, sort of focus in that way because it's concentric only. That's the thing on a like on a treadmill. Uh-huh. Sorry, on a cycle. Yeah. So if you went and let's say, like, well, just lift as much as you can. That's the way I generally suggest people is just get in shape to the lifting. 
but maybe for some people like they don't want to do that. So they do a DC style training where they do two heavy sets and they do a widow maker. And it's like that widow maker that gets them on the heavier set. They kind of get a little winded. Like, so then what they do on those days, you say, okay, after that, you got plenty of damage. Like we don't want to do a whole bunch, a lot of eccentric contractions. You've done all the lifting you can handle in terms of recovering. Um, but the person doesn't get that sword, generally speaking. Now we're going to throw in concentric only wind gates, hmm. huge energy expenditure, huge effort level. They can go home, eat, relax, et cetera, et cetera. And now they've got that extra stimulus for mitochondrial biogenesis. Hmm. Imagine you do that for, you know, a, like a, a mesocycle of training and you come back like eight weeks later. And you're used to following up those leg days with two wind gates, just two. Let's just say it's two. That's that's actually that's like one is enough. Like two is like oh shit. If people do this right, they finish them and they're lying on the floor. Yeah, they're, they're fucked. Like they're they're not doing anything for like a minute after that. Um, then like you know, doing a, a set of eight to true failure, you can do that shit. Yeah, you know, you can handle that. And the widowmaker, you're like, I'm going after this. Like yeah. it's going to be muscle fatigue not cardiopulmonary fatigue that's going to end me. And then I'll shift my, 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 um, you know, my cardiorespiratory stimulus to doing those wind gates to help maintain and support that aspect. So that's, so that's not the limiting factor. So you make the weight train the limiting factor in your growth, hmm. um, in your progress, but limiting the carbs afterwards is going to limit depending on how you're doing your diet. Like I like to have carbs, in or after a workout, especially if you've got, if you're depending on what you're doing calorically, if you're dieting down or you don't only have so many carbs you're going to put in or a number of different things, a whole other tangent, but that's your best time for ensuring that your carbs are going to go to repair and replenishment of glycogen. Yeah. Insulin's helpful. You know, all those, there's a timing, potential timing benefit to taking them in then. And the question that Michelle had here was like, well, if we limit the carbs afterwards, you know, can we get even more mitochondrial biogenesis out of the deal? And I'm thinking, you know, like nine out of 10 of, of the, of what you're going to get is going to come from how many of those wind gates you do. Nine, if you, if you can sort of scale the, the adaptation into, into like, you know, hundred percent, 90% of it's going to come from how many, how effortful they are, how hard you can go. And then maybe your fuel, your diet is going to change that a little bit. Hmm. But okay. the fact that you're low carbing is going to have probably a greater adverse effect on how hard you can train in general, um, in a way that's not going to make it worth your while. So you're going to, you're going to, you're going to take one step forward and two steps back huh. a little more mitochondria, but you're low carb, so you, your performance sucks. So you shot yourself in the foot. Now you might do that. This is what they were trying to do with the, um, with the high fat diets and endurance exercises pretty kind of cool is you have people train on the high fat diets and try to evoke more mitochondria that way. And it makes training would make training harder. And then they add carbs back in and now you've got more mitochondria and now they got the carbs that they can run on. Yeah. So now they, you, you, so you sort of evoked an additional challenge running low carb, but the problem that people run into is they just can't train as hard. Mm. So their training sucks. And because their training sucks, they detrain. Yeah, and then you add the carbs back in, and they're just kind of back to where they were, and now they have to retrain again. So they never, they never really got ahead of the game. Interesting. Um, so you know, for some people, it probably could work. You know, depending on you know, there's always, there's always a, a spectrum of where things could and couldn't work. 
but um you know and i'm not sure why she's asking about this particular so it's hard to know what it is that she's really wanting to uh to get into but it's an excellent question because it made for some good conversation too i thought it's i think it's a cool topic yeah. that's good that's good yeah I have one more, I believe it's like a drug related thing. I don't know if this will be in your right. wheelhouse. Um, he says, Hopefully it's not alone. Yes. Uh, well, what would you think about high dose nandrolone? Is it right that it's conversion to E1 can replace the same function as E2? Does a dose as high as two grams per week? Maybe combined with EQ thoughts, please. Jordan did that. Um, what did he do? A high dose uh, nandrolone. Okay, he's run a couple cycles like that. You can find on his board. Um, so, yeah. So that and he actually sex drive was really high. Yeah. So, yeah. So this has to do with, and I, we've talked about this before. Um, about nandrolone and uh, nandrolone being highly androgenic. It's the it's the reduced form that is not. Um, so it's a little bit different than uh, five alpha than DHT and testosterone. Okay. Taking a this is my guess. This is what was going on here. So. Um, dihydronandrolone is really what, how a lot of it will end up as. Yeah. Um, but when, after it's five alpha reduced, um, but if you take in two, two grams, um, you're going to have a lot that's uh, not reducing. Yeah. Is that what you're thinking? Or? Yeah. And okay. you'll have nandrolone, which is more androgenic oh. and that ex- would explain why, um, Jordan and other people who've done it, you know, at least reading on like professional muscle, yeah. um, they get, you know, high sex drive. So normally, huh. yeah. So, normally so yeah, if you're it, using like five, 400 milligrams, it's like enough that you can convert that possibly to more DHN versus two grams. You're like, ah, this is too much to convert. Yeah. The enzyme can't wow. handle that. So you, yeah, huh. that's, that's my guess as to why, you know, yeah. so that's, that's a, a ma- it's called a mass action effect. Just generally speaking. So you've got, you've got, we'll, we'll kind of do it for the, the, the listeners or the viewers. So we've got nandrolone here that con- gets converted to, to um, dihydronandrolone through the 5-alpha reductase enzyme. So it's going from here to here. And it can only go so fast. Yeah. So if you've got huge amounts of dihydronandrolone, or sort of huge amounts of nandrolone, and you only convert it so fast, you're going to have a relative um, higher level of nandrolone than 5-hydronandrolone. Whereas if you've got an enzyme that can easily take in whatever nandrolone you're putting in, you get lots of, of dihydronandrolone, which is lo- lower and um, it's more anabolic and less androgenic. Yeah. So, and you're also you got Take the dynamics of this. More DECA. That's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, it, it was working, you know, pretty well. I think everyone I've heard who's actually, I, I think I've think of, I think I think I can think of three people that did that. Yeah. Um, and, but that's all they did. Okay. Was that. You're, so um, no test, you mean? Yeah. Wow. I mean, sometimes people try to – see, here's the thing is like there's this thought, you know, that you have a cycle of, you know, 1,000, 1,500 milligrams of total stuff, 
or 2,000 milligrams of total stuff. Yeah. It's like, well, we just want to make sure we can replace, we're going to cover our testosterone bases. So we just throw 100 or 200 milligrams of testosterone there as our testosterone base. It's like, well, testosterone, for it to do what, it's, what it does, is 5-alpha reduced, it's aromatized, so you've got its, its, its reduced form, its androgenic actions, you've got its estrogenic actions via being aromatized. And now you're taking in, like, if you put nandrolone in there, it's going to just totally, like, you know, bump uh, testosterone out of the way at the 5-alpha reductase enzyme. Hmm. So um, it's, you've, you're interrupting the flow through of the testosterone in so many ways, yeah. depending on all the stuff that you're using there. Um, plus, you've got things like if it's trend that's binding to the progesterone receptor, which has molecular interactions which tend to cause estrogenic effects, kind of like we were talking about before with the, um, with the ment. Um, then you've got so many things going on there. Like you can't really, you can't really in any way, shape or form be really sure that you've, that you somehow managed to like keep those testosterone activities in place. Right. That makes because sense. You're mess- yeah. You're messing with, estrogen conversion dht convert converge to dht and estrogen as well as you know binding to the progesterone receptor prolactin production possibly blah blah blah. yeah the second part of this question was was um eq and you know people run into high problems with i don't know if you're talking about a high dose of eq i'm not sure if that's what he was getting at too but people get horrible anxiety sometimes and and they get really um, hematic issues. He said uh, doses as high as, and he said maybe combined with EQ. He was just saying maybe yeah. combining it in there. Yeah, I mean, I don't. There's so many ways you can kind of dissect these things out, but um, if he combines it with EQ, um, the interesting thing about all the and about. Just, I'll just give my sort of standard pad answer here for the different steroids is that they have different shapes because they're they're different compounds and they will have different binding affinities and activities when they bind to the different antigen receptors. Which makes sense. Yeah. And and people have different antigen receptors because they have different genes um, for the antigen receptors. So there's different couple different sequences in the antigen receptor that vary genetically that give rise to an antigen receptor that's shaped differently. So it's the lock and key hypothesis. The lock is the antigen receptor. The key is your androgen, your, your, um, your steroid. And everyone's got a little bit different, differently shaped lock. And what effect putting those different keys in there will have depends on the person, the lock, which lock you're talking about, the classical genomic one or the one that's on the plasma membrane or the ones, um, as well as which how that key fits in the lock. So EQ for him, some people love EQ. It's great. They don't get any, you know, psychological activity, which is probably related to that plasma, um, or sort of the plasma membrane receptor. I think a lot of the psycho psychoactive effects, like the orals that, that act like immediately, like you could, you take halo or something like that and you can feel it in 30 minutes. That's probably acting through those rapidly, acting plasma membrane receptors that don't act the way the traditional energy receptor acts. Hmm. So that might be what EQ is doing. I don't know that, hmm. but those are probably variable too. Yeah. Um, I, I always had so, done okay with EQ, which I tend to be someone 
who had suffered with anxiety, which I you yeah. would think like, hey, that guy's prone to anxiety. You take the EQ, it's going to get worse. But I never had that. So yeah. just whatever, ever, however I'm, however I'm put together. How high did you go? I went pretty high at one point. I ran. Okay. Uh, I had gone to a gram of EQ. That's and that's where people like have all sorts of issues sometimes. They just I meant best cycle, out. best cycle at a gram of EQ. Not that I suggest doing it, but I hate right. It. Okay, yeah. So I mean, that's that's a general thing that you'll see, like with guys. And not that this is the case for you, but when guys have success with gear, is that they can take a lot and they don't have the side effects. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like it, some to some degree it comes down to like effectiveness versus side effects. And, you know, like there's a, like a, like you can look at, like, we can look at binding studies. You can look at various mm. ways of hypothetically trying to examine how much gear um, would give you the maximal response. And that's why, you know, people are yeah. doing like Paul Boris and like cycles and that kind of shit, you know, that's why he, you know, even, I think this was part of his theory, if I recall correctly, is like, we're going to just like go for it. We're going to put in like 6,000 milligrams a week or whatever, just crazy amounts. And just because you can turn on all the anabolism with that high amount and get, at least for a short period of time, minimal side effects. Yeah. Yeah. So you might find, like, if someone starts off, let's say someone starts off happy and healthy and their liver is robust, and, I don't know, let's say they go for a high dose of two grams. Okay. And they're growing like weed. And some of that's just because they're growing new and there's like, a you know, the law of diminishing returns. Yeah. But they're growing really well. And then like whatever it is they're using starts to slowly have toxicity effects that take hold. So let's say their liver is unhappy. They're going to have less IGF-1. They're going to start sleeping poorly because of trenbolone. That's going to impact their recovery in many, many ways. Their digestion gets a little bit screwy. So there's more stress there that just increases their cortisol levels because they're like, you know, fearing their meals and they're not hungry. And just life is kind of sucking. And for them, continuing that 200, 2,000 milligrams would would be – they're going nowhere. They're just building side effects. And, um, you know, whether or not the energy receptor is upregulating or downregulating or it's, you're some, there's some other mechanism of desensitization, which I suspect there is, um, those 2,000 milligrams 12 weeks into it when they're toxed out are no longer going to be effective because now the, the activity, even, even if it's doing all the same things, there's no desensitization in terms of the signaling that happens like directly on the muscle cell from the gear the person's taking in. All those other things are going to shift the relative balance of anabolism to catabolism in the wrong direction. Hmm. So now they're a toxed out, unhappy, poor sleeping, bloated, yeah. you know, green faced, you know, green eyed, jaundiced mess. And they're thinking, what, what would most guys do? Well, I made good gains up the dose, yeah, you know, and that's not the right way to go. It could be, you know, aside from them just at that point, get the fuck off and, you know, take care of yourself. But, you know, it, it could be that a lesser dose is much more useful. Yeah. So, you know, people like, like approaches like Victor Black has, for instance, um, you know, or the guy that Latz had talked to, uh, the Russian, I think he was the Russian guy. Yeah, yeah. Who had found out for himself kind of what the max doses are before he has noticeable side effects. Like you, it could be that let's say 
you know, whereas you get, you know, an effectiveness of like, you know, eight out of 10 from two grams a week um, when you have no side effects. Um, but those, those, it only lasts for a week before you start to have toxicity accumulation. It could be that someone could do 400 milligrams hmm. and tolerate that really well. Yeah. And be, be the turtle, so to speak, yes. who beats the hair, who burns out because the hair is, you know, sprinting every hundred meters and then on the side of the road vomiting while the turtle's just like, you know, creeping along. Yeah. I'm a happy turtle. I'm just yeah. chugging away and they win the marathon and Dude. they end up being the bigger, healthier, happier of the two. I didn't realize. So Darren had chimed in and said that Paul Borison had said cycles were, or the Paul Borison cycles were like yeah. one gram a day for two yeah. weeks. That's why I said 6,000. 6,000 milligrams a week. Yeah, that's 7,000 milligrams a week is a gram a day. Yeah, I, did, yeah. I didn't think about it that way until I actually heard him do the, <laughs> the breakdown on yeah. the day. A gram per day. It's nuts, man. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think it was – maybe this was Trevor Smith or maybe they both did this. But I think Borison's idea was you would plan all this out and you would just um, – like let's say you're, you're going to use test, DECA, and EQ. Yeah. A gram of test a day is that what he's saying? That's I think. What, yeah. Um, yeah. But what you're saying though, yeah. Oh, but I, but he like you would get like a you know a big like 50 mil vial or something like that, and you just like you know you get like all your 10 mil and 20 mil vials or whatever you have, and just put them all into one. Like yeah. you prep it all there. So you have like one giant like jug that's going to be like you know your weeks. That's going to be your cycle for the next. I've weeks. seen people do that. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess you know like a gram. Oh my god! Like yeah, that's like. It's like five mils a day or something like that. Hmm. That's crazy. What you're doing, man. Yeah. Darren still has the VHSs of that dude. If you can get that onto video, man, I, I or onto digital, I got to see that stuff. That'd be crazy. Oh, I would love to see it too. That yeah. would be gold, man. Pure gold right there. Yeah. And you know, I don't know. Um, I can't. Uh, did Paul, did he, he obviously he's passed, but I don't know how he died. That may have been just speculation, but yeah. I don't know if that's a sustainable for most people. That's not a very sustainable. No, um, no. And it's not what we generally it. would suggest to do here at think no. big, you know, <laughs> no, not at all. But, 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 but you see, I mean, it's interesting. I, I mentioned that only because of the idea of trying to get the maximal anabolic effect with avoiding those side effects, mm -hmm. you know, like that's like a gram a day. Like, you know, you about after two weeks, you're totally done there. Yeah. You know, yeah. but with all things, you know, it's, the question is how fast can you grow muscle? Mm, like yeah. truly grow muscle. How fast can you turn on the protein synthesis? So like this applies to like post show when mm -hmm. people want to have a rebound, yeah. you know, and you're eating and you, you fill up with your glycogen, you fill up with your water. And then you, if you continue with a 2000 a day caloric excess, yeah, you know, and you literally can only, if you're like, I, I did the numbers on this, actually, if you're growing at about a 25 gram, 25 pound a year rate of muscle mass that breaks down to about a 500 calorie a day caloric excess in order to, okay. if all of it went to muscle. Right. So let's say half of it goes to muscle. So you want to make sure you got at least 500 available for muscle. You take in an extra thousand calories a day. Yeah. That's a good, it's a, it's a sizable caloric excess. You're, you know, if you have that awesome rate of muscle growth, 25 pounds in a year is just like outstanding. And it's going to continually like, go each month, let's just, you know? Yeah. yeah if, if we're presuming that that's like, that's the rate, like that's, it's hard to know. There's, you know, it's not going to be a straight line, Yeah. but then, you know, then you're going to have, 
um, a, you know, a, a thousand calories a day, 500 of muscle, 500 of fat. That's 3,500 about per week to fat. It's a pound of fat every, um, every week, you know, but if you go to 2000, and let's say you don't, and you get that, still you're getting that massive, the 2000 means you're going to get three pounds of fat. Yeah. So you're putting on four pounds a week, but three of it's fat. Um, would it make more sense to get a half a pound a week, which is still 12 pounds in a year, and um, maybe only get uh, two thirds comes from muscle and one third comes from fat, so you put on a third of a pound of fat. Hey, I'd take that and not have to get as much off because who knows how much you're going to lose after you have to yeah. diet it down, you know? Yeah. It'd be a lot. So there was an old, I'll go a real old school. I know probably uh, if Nick Wary is watching this, he'll remember this one. There was um, Bill Phillips' ABCDE diet. Do you remember uh, that one, Scott? I don't remember that one, no. A- anabolic burst cycling of diet and exercise. Okay, I like that. Yeah. Wow. Oh, ABCDE. Nice yeah. yeah. I think he just said like we've got we got to do make a b like a whole bunch of letters that people can remember. Yeah, so I can remember make, those. <laughs> yeah, and I don't remember exactly how I I I think I think I may have tried it for a week or something. I got it was such a big deal for a while, and it was literally massive caloric excess. Yeah, um, just like what the name says, anabolic burst cycling of, and then you would like go like you know go to like a protein sparing pairing, sparing modified fast. And then back to like massive caloric excess and back and forth. It was something crazy like that. Huh. And it, no one ever made any progress. It sounded great on paper. It was just awesome. Yeah. And it was just, it was like such a caloric excess that you were superseding what the maximal rate of muscle growth could possibly be. Yeah. You know, you go 300 calories over, over, you know, in, in excess and, you know, maybe it's a 200 calories to muscle, hundred calories to fat. And then you go to 500 and now it's 300 to 500 and then you go a thousand and now it's, 500 to 500 and now you go to 1500 and now it's now it's 900 to 600 and like 2000 and now so your your relative p ratio so to speak gets worse and worse and worse so once you go to 7000 calories a day or whatever like that when you're ensuring that like 85 percent of those extra calories go to body fat yeah you just can't take that off like if you put if you have a 5000 calorie a day caloric excess for two days in a row and you have to eat like nothing for the next two days and do exercise in order to negate that. You'll never come back. Some of those, so, some of the things I've seen, like some of the diets I've seen, some of the gear protocols I've seen on the message boards back in the day, they were, I think, better sales pitches than in anything else. Like, I want to get yeah. behind this because this sounds cool and this sounds like mm-hmm. it'll give me what I want when in reality it was not maybe the, the case. Yeah. I mean, that that's like, it, like the Paul Boris and stuff is, I mean, it's exciting, right? It's like, yeah. it fits the mindset. Yeah. You go in the gym and you're like, you're like, motherfucker, gravity's my bitch. It's going down. I'm Give me the big weight. You, you're aggressive. Yeah. You're just, you get after it. Like, that's how you get, how you make gains. You have to have that mentality, you know, tackle the shit and you're, and you're an unstoppable force of nature. Right. So a, 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 like when that is a mentality that, you know, works, and needs to be applied in the correct measure, meaning at the right times, that's very appealing to someone to say, okay, here we go. Grandma yeah. day, baby. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, absolutely. Pile it all in. So it's, you know, and there's going to be, you know, some placebo effect there too. It, yeah. But then the we thing. get fat and we learn. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing, you know, too, is um, you're going to do everything else right. 
Like when you when you're all in, like when you've gone all in, yes. or like you push all your chips to the middle, you're like, I'm going to make sure I'm doing everything perfect. Like your whole life. Like I mean, I I'm trying to trying to imagine. I mean, you for most, I'm I'm thinking if someone did like a you know a, a random survey of of bodybuilders following the Paul Borison style of training, like how many of them. And, and this isn't a knock on, you know, going all in on bodybuilding. Of course you know, not. Especially, you know, now in, in the day and age where we're seeing some, you know, a lot of people passing and like people are thinking like, what the hell am I doing? You're like, have I been taking unnecessary risks, blah, blah, blah. But if you think about if you did a survey of the Paul, like how many of those are also, you know, the family man, you know, who's, yeah. who's like got a very balanced family, you know, and like. You know, like like oh, okay, honey, like um, I'll be right back. You put keep the keep the dinner on them. I it's gotta gonna go load a, up these fucking syringes. Yeah, it's gonna you be know? a certain mindset for sure. A certain it's, person, it's a, exactly. It's a single minded thinking. You kind of have to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, if you're gonna be that way, because it's all in. So that's gonna mean if you've adopted that, that you're also doing everything else. That's, huh. And it could be that. You know, maybe there's something about, you know, having seven grams a week or whatever that's going to produce some gains for sure. Yeah. Um, but having all those other pieces in place could be half of what what is really actually working. Yeah. All right. Doing something like that. Listen, let's wrap this thing up. We've gone long here. Uh, great stuff, as yeah. always. Guys, uh, check out Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach, BYOBBCoach.com, or you can go to Amazon. Check out Scott's book over there. Uh, of course, go to our great sponsors, truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK. And uh, check out supplementsource.ca. And thank you for our questions today that came from Patreon. You guys are awesome, helping to support our programming. I appreciate it much. I thought you were grabbing the book. I thought you were grabbing, oh, I thought no, you were grabbing for the book. You guys know the book. Scott, I appreciate you as always, man. We'll see you guys soon. Thanks, brother.